This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast, an inlet of incisiveness in an uncivil world. Yes, but are we inclusiveness uh, in an incite? I'm including civil world. <laughs> I'm including everybody out That's there. That's right. We are. And we will try to be absolutely. Civil. Our podcast is like a mountain stream. If by mountain stream you mean two crazy preppers talking to each other, <laughs> alone in a room That's with a microphone. Right. That's right. And who are these crazy preppers? Well, I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Doctor Bones of the award-winning survival website DoomAndBloom.net, where you'll find over 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And purveyor of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. She's so adorable, kittens watch videos of her. It's true. <laughs> no, I watch videos of kittens. Kittens and <laughs> puppies and babies together. <laughs> On this show, you're going to get all the information you need about sumo wrestling, but you'll also get the conventional medical wisdom and the unconventional medical wisdom, whatever it takes to get your family medically prepared for troubled times. Mm-hmm. So you got to listen to this first. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Please. Wow, that was pretty fast. You can uh, be on some of those commercials. Yeah, those are fake. They just speed up the sound. I actually said that fast. (laughs) I had no idea. How about that? Well, so seek modern and standard medical care whenever it's available Mm -hmm. or don't if your life means absolutely nothing to you but what happens in a disaster when the hospitals are crowded when there's nowhere else to turn well surprise you are the highest medical asset left so you better get off your duff if you're going to save your stuff before we get started i just want to mention that the new fourth edition of the survival medicine handbook greatly expanded and revised hit for a short period of time number 45 of all books on amazon that's how many books Usually, oh gosh, there's like 20 million. But oh my god! But the thing is, it was 48 when we went to sleep, and then when we woke up, it was 45. So they changed it every two hours. So it's possible in the middle of the night it could have been much higher. Wow. Well, that is pretty incredible. Well, this Thanksgiving, we want to express our gratitude for everyone's kind words and support throughout the years. You are awesome out there. If you haven't gotten the fourth edition, by the way. Check it out on Amazon or at store.doomandbloom.net. The color version's on our store, just so folks know. Right. But no, I can get the black and white version on the store, too. But Amazon only has the black and white version. Correct. Well, we had our first cold wave of the year down here in South Florida, where it hit a frigid 57 degrees. We survived. I don't know how. But I hear that there are places out there that get even colder. So we should talk about cold-related illness today and how to deal with it off the grid. Now, given the coming winter, we should all know how to deal with patients suffering the ill effects of cold weather. That's called hypothermia. And the environment plays a huge role in your success if you're going to be the medic in survival settings. If you don't take weather conditions and other factors into account, you have made the environment your enemy, and it is a formidable one. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, normally, the body core ranges from about 97.5 to 99.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And for you Celsius folk out there, that's 36.5 to 37.5 degrees Celsius. Now, when you take that's when you take it orally or rectally. Rectal temperatures tend to be slightly higher than oral, 
Uh, ear temperatures tend to be slightly higher than oral, and oral temperatures tend to be slightly higher than skin readings, such as those that you take in the armpit. Hypothermia begins when the body core drops below about 95 degrees. The body loses heat in various ways. It loses heat by evaporation. Uh, perspiration and sweating from physical exertion or other reasons releases heat from the body core. Uh, it can lose heat by radiation. The body loses heat to the environment when the ambient temperature, the surrounding temperature, is below the core temperature. In other words, you lose more heat if you're exposed to an outside temperature of 20 degrees Fahrenheit than if you're exposed to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Makes you're sense. at 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, so those are or colder so. temperatures. Or so. <laughs> or so. Right. So those are colder temperatures, so the heat radiates out. Uh, also, conduction is an issue. The body loses heat when its surface is in direct contact with cold temperatures, as in the case falling of someone falling from a boat into frigid water. Think the Titanic. Water is denser than air. It actually removes the heat from the body much faster than air does. But then there's also convection, heat loss, where, for instance, a cooler object is in motion against the body core. The air next to the skin, by the way, is a tiny bit hotter than the surrounding temperature. And it's removed by, let's say, wind, and that requires the body to use energy to reheat itself and form that little layer again. Wind chill is one example, just one example of air conve convection. Uh, if the ambient temperature is about 32 degrees Fahrenheit, but the wind chill is 5 degrees Fahrenheit, the wind chill factor, you lose heat from your body as if it were actually 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, the body, when exposed to cold, kicks into action. Okay, has to produce heat, and it's important for you to be able to identify hypothermia. It does this start. It starts to do this by muscle actions. Muscles shiver, right, to produce heat, and it's a warning that you need to warm up. As hypothermia worsens, more symptoms will become apparent. Aside from shivering, the most notable noticeable symptoms of hypothermia will be related to mental status. The person may appear confused, uncoordinated, lethargic. The victim's speech becomes slurred, like mine often, <laughs> often is when it's I talk not. It is not. on this podcast. <laughs> and they'll often appear uninterested. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, they'll appear uninterested in helping themselves. They'll be very apathetic, apathetic about all. Right. Right. Uh, just one, let me lay here and die. I'm good. Or actually, they exactly. don't even say die. They'll just sleep. Say, let me be here. I'll take right. I'm tired. I want to just go to sleep. Absolutely. They won't even know that they're actually having this. Now, one thing you might look for is what we call the umbles. The umbles are stumbles, mumbles, fumbles, and grumbles. And these <laughs> represent changes in motor coordination and levels of consciousness. I have to laugh because you grumble sometimes. I grumble and I mumble. Mostly when mostly I'm talking on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so all this occurs due to the effect of cooling temperatures on the brain. Mm -hmm. The colder the body core gets the slower the brain works. As things deteriorate, other organs begin to shut down and the victim indeed loses consciousness. Any unconscious person out there that you find exposed to cold weather is hypothermic until proven otherwise. Now, cold-related effects also include local damage to tissues such as frostbite. Frostbite affects areas like fingers, toes, nose, earlobes, even lips. Sometimes called frost nip or chillblains in really early stages, it begins as numbness, pins and needles sensations, and redness. Blistering is also something you might see. 
Now, if the skin is not warm, the skin turns progressively white and waxy, then blue, then finally black, a condition known as gangrene. Gangrenous tissue is dead and pretty much unsalvageable and may require what we call debridement, the removal of dead tissue or even amputation. We'll discuss this further in a future article. So how do you treat hypothermia? With immediate action, that's how. Yep. Failure to act quickly may lead to organ failure and death. Important measures to take are to, one, get the person out of the cold. That's the most basic one. Transport them to a warm, dry location. If you're unable to move the person out of the cold, shield them as much as possible. Be sure to place a barrier between them and the cold ground. You want to cover your victim with warm blankets, including the head, but not the face. You want to make sure that they're breathing. Apply dry, warm compresses to areas where blood vessels run close to the skin, like the neck, the armpit, and the groin. This will allow more effective transfer of warm temperatures to the body core. You want to, of course, monitor breathing because people with severe hypothermia are going to be unconscious, possibly. You got to just always verify the patient's breathing, check for a pulse, and you may have to begin CPR. It's always important to know CPR. Uh, take off wet clothing. If the person's wearing wet clothing, you want to remove them gently. Cover them with layers of dry blankets, including the head, but leave the face clear. Share body heat. That's something important to warm the person's body. Some people suggest removing clothing and lying next to the person, the victim of hypothermia, and making skin-to-skin -skin contact. Then covering maybe with blankets. Now, you may, awesome. not, you may not be... <laughs> Can you, we can we do that? Oh, I'm very you, cold, honey. <laughs> some people are cringe just at the notion of doing well, this. Because it's a stranger. Now, you're not I mean, warm and getting fuzzy naked with, with a stranger right, sounds right. terrible. But you're saving someone's life. That's and you have exactly to the point. Go past that, and you're not going to get any, any diseases. By the way, that's right. Skin to skin contact will not expose you to any diseases. Now, some people say gentle massage or rubbing may be helpful, but vigorous movements they may be a little too traumatic for. Fluid standpoint, from a fluid standpoint, give warm oral fluids if the affected person is alert and able to swallow. You might consider providing a warm, non-alcoholic, non-caffeinated beverage to help warm the body. Now, alcohol does not warm you up. Instead, it expands blood vessels and actually hastens the loss of heat from the body core. So you may have seen those uh, St. Bernards on the Alpine with the little barrels, mountain ranges with the little barrels of brandy or what whatever. Do you call it? Caskets, cask casks of casks. brandies for <laughs> of, right, right of brandy for the lost mountaineer. And indeed, not a great idea. It's not a great idea. No. So anyhow, no bourbon, no whiskey. Other things to do: use warm, dry compresses. Uh, use a first aid warm compress or a makeshift compress of warm not hot water in a plastic plastic bottle and apply them to the war to the neck the groin the armpit things like that i think it's important that you say warm because the heat can be damaging to the skin if it's too hot oh absolutely and if they don't have much sensation because they become numb in those areas they're not going to be able to tell you hey that's too hot for my skin so you could actually cause more damage. So make sure it's just warm. Right. Don't use hot water. Uh, yeah. Don't use heating pads. Don't use uh, heating lamps that directly on the person. Oh, boy. The extreme heat can damage the skin, yeah. cause strain on the heart, even lead to cardiac arrest. Now, prevention, an ounce of it, well, it's worth maybe, maybe your life. Yeah. So you, medic, want to prevent it among your people. Anticipate the climate that you'll be traveling through. 
include wind conditions, wet weather. Take all these into account. Condition yourself physically to be fit enough to deal with the challenge. Travel with a partner, though, if at all possible. It's always better to be in a group of people if you can. Mm -hmm. And certainly you want to have enough food and available for the entire trip. One thing I think that is helpful to remember is the simple acronym COLD, C-O-L-D. This stands for cover, overexertion, layers, and dry. Now, cover stands for a C. The C in cold stands for cover. Dress appropriately for the weather. Protect your head by wearing a hat, lots of surface area on your head. This is going to prevent body heat from escaping and something that is very important. Uh, instead of using gloves to cover your hands, you might consider mittens. Mittens are more helpful than gloves because they keep your fingers in contact with each other. And that conserves heat. O in cold is for overexertion. Avoid activities that cause you to sweat a lot. Cold weather causes you to lose body heat very quickly. Wet, sweaty clothing accelerates the process even more. So you want to rest when necessary. Use rest periods to self-assess for cold-related changes. And you want to pay special attention to the status of elderly or juvenile group members. Diabetics are also at high risk for developing hypothermia. Uh, L in cold, that stands for layers. Loose-fitting, lightweight clothing and layers allow a thin layer of warm air between each layer and do the best job of insulating you against the cold. Use tightly woven water-repellent material for wind protection like wool or silk. Uh, these are great inner layers that hold body heat better than cotton does. Some synthetic materials like Gore-Tex, they work well also. And you want to always make sure to especially cover the head, neck, hands, and feet. And D in cold stands for dry. Keep as dry as you can. Get out of wet clothing as soon as you possibly can. Remember, it's very easy for snow to get into gloves and boots. So pay particular attention to your hands and feet. Now, what if you're caught in the middle of a blizzard and stranded in the middle of the storm that's terrible that's terrible no that it's very terrible. very scary the concern of anyone stranded in the cold whether it's in the wilderness an urban environment or a vehicle is to find the warmest shelter available in a post-collapse city many abandoned buildings will provide a refuge from the wind and its wind chill effects and perhaps fuel to build a fire a vehicle can serve also as its own shelter now if you're stuck in the forest wilderness a tree well shelter can be constructed out of the snow a tree well is the sunken area around the trunk of a tree in very deep snow. Although often considered a hazard, this area is relatively easy to excavate, and if the tree has low-hanging branches, should provide protection from falling snow. Look for natural barriers nearby that can serve as windbreaks, but beware of slopes where you may be exposed to drifts or even avalanches. Oof, scary. The space you dig out should be small. Small shelters take less effort to keep warm than large ones. Pack your snow walls really tightly so that they can retain heat better and maybe support a makeshift roof of maybe evergreen boughs, uh, debris. Uh, that can be placed on the floor also to protect you from the cold ground. Then you can add some on top maybe to make a roof. Ooh, well, that's a good idea. I think that is a good idea. Tarps uh, or solar blankets can be used for this purpose, but remember, winds can easily blow them off, so you need to tie rocks to the corners as weights. Perfect. If you make a fire, make sure to have ventilation holes in your shelter. Entrances and ventilation holes should open at a, about a 90-degree angle to the prevailing winds. Let's go back to being stranded in a vehicle. Say you're stuck in a stalled car on the road in a blizzard. Stay in it, because thanks to your body heat, the temperature in the vehicle is warmer than outside. In addition, you have protection from the wind. So leaving the vehicle 
That may be a bad idea. It could even disorient you in driving snow. If the motor's running, turn it on for only about 10 minutes each hour for heat. Although the heater helps, wet snow can block up your exhaust system and cause carbon monoxide oh, gas to enter terrible. the passenger compartment. You need fresh air, so crack a window on the opposite side from where the wind is coming. If you're in a group, you want to huddle together as best you can to create a warm pocket in the car. Your muscles, as we mentioned before, produce heat involuntarily by shivering, but you can rub your hands, put them in your armpits, or otherwise keep moving to achieve the same goal. There are a number of items that you should always have in your car, especially in cold weather. These are meant to keep you safe if the unthinkable happens and you're stranded without hope of rescue. A full set of camping supplies, that would be awesome to keep if you had space in your car, but there are some items that really are particularly important if you're going to be driving in very cold weather. Wool blankets, that would be, I think, a really good thing to have. Uh, wool could stay warm even if it's wet. If it's wet that's something important. Uh, spare sets of dry clothes, especially socks, hats, and mittens. Mm -hmm. I think that would be good. Hand warmers or other instant heat packs. These are activated by shaking or crunching them. And uh, these things last for hours, so certainly would be a useful item. Matches, lighters, fire starters to manufacture heat might be helpful. Flashlight and candles. Well, they are also useful. Um, you want to keep your batteries in your flashlights, by the way, in backwards until you actually need them that will help extend the life of the batteries i do that for our first aid kits you do so when you guys get kits and you say oh the flashlight's not working <laughs> or the pin light's not working flip the batteries around right <laughs> i've done that on purpose Follow or the, the pulse oximeters if Follow the batteries the are in That's yeah right. uh let's see a small <laughs> multi-tool tool will be helpful one that has a blade screwdrivers pliers etc a uh, large combination tool like a foldable Chinese army shovel. Uh, aren't they all these days? Uh, Chinese, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even if it's regular, it's still Chinese. Right, that's useful though because so it acts as a shovel but also as an axe, a saw. It serves various purposes. Uh, sand, some sand, some rock salt might be helpful to give traction where needed to get your car going. Mm -hmm. A tow chain or rope might be helpful. Flares, starter cables, um, Let's see what else. Uh, water and food. You want to have some energy bars, maybe MREs, dehydrated soups, can candies, things like that. Baby wipes for hygiene purposes. Uh, a medical kit, mm. probably pretty good not thing to have. Not a bad medications. idea. Good point. Uh, some tarp and duct tape. Brightly colored ones, by the way, will be more visible. It might help in getting you rescued. Yep. Uh, and a metal cup or thermos. And you can use that not only for your coffee that might be in there already, but you can use it to melt snow, things like that. Uh, a noisemaker or whistle, something that would sort of signal people f uh, that you need help. Great idea. That would be helpful. And of course, your cell phone and charger, very important. And maybe a weather radio. It should be, should be noted that some of this stuff, such as starter cables, are most helpful in normal times when there are rescue resources available. And sometimes there are, sometimes there aren't. Now, I'll bet you guys can think of some other helpful tools out there to get through the blizzard. If you have some hints for us, be sure to email me with them at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Next time, by the way, we're going to talk a little bit about cold water safety, which is indeed the topic of an article that uh, was uh, very nicely published by Backwoods Survival Guide recently, yeah. our good friend Jim, Jim Cobb. Yep. So what do you have to talk about today? Nursing care. All right. So what's important about nursing care? You know, it's funny, Joe and I have been writing these survival medicine books since 
gosh, we started writing articles in 2010. Um, But I really think that the issue of actually caring for the patient that's in bed has kind of been overlooked. And I feel bad for that because I I have wanted to put it in and we just never got a chance. So I'm, I'm super excited about this new fourth edition because it does have a whole section in there on nursing care for the sick and injured. And um, I don't think there's any other book like this. There's no first aid book and there's no survival or austere book or bushcraft medicine book or whatever it is you're looking at that actually addresses caring for a patient that has a serious injury or is very sick um, at home. We have actually talked about in um, the pandemic book about making a sick room, but primarily we were discussing them having a contagious infection and trying to keep things uh, sanitized and how to keep you and the other group members from being sick or getting what this person had and transmitting it around. Obviously, we know that happens because we're having a pandemic. But there are other injuries. There are other reasons why somebody's going to be put in bed, a a fracture, a serious burn, um, some sort of bleeding injury. So, you know, there are other reasons, and I I felt it was super important. So I'm going to talk about at least a couple of sections here, but not the whole thing because I think it's too long and... um, I don't think you guys want to listen to an hour-long show. So anyway, the guidelines that I'm going to discuss are not in any particular order. I don't want you to say, okay, well, this is number one because she said it first. There are uh, sections. I have a section called Vital Signs and Charting. I have one called Safety and Shelter and one called Hygiene and Sanitation and another called Nutrition and Hydration. And then there's one um, called the bedridden patient. And really that is to um, help you not allow the patient who is really not mobile at all. Because some of these patients are going to be mobile. They'll be able to get up to the bathroom, take a shower, maybe sit in a chair. But there are some injuries where that patient's really just going to be confined to bed. And, and that takes some special kind of care to prevent um serious issues from decreased mobility. So first thing that I would uh, mention and that you really have to put, you know, again, not in a particular priority, but I think it is very important, is vital signs and charting. Make sure that you are taking the patient's temperature and the blood pressure and the heart rate and checking the respirations at least three times daily. Now, that is just standard for nursing care. However, if you have a patient that say has a fever, you're not probably going to only take it three times a day. You may be checking this person once an hour or even more frequently if you see a, a trend going up and you're worried about a certain level and what you might need to do for that fever, very high feverish patient. Because you might have to do some other things to, to cool them off and keep them from having possible brain injuries or seizures. So, you know, again, I say three times daily until recovered. So that's the minimum because you do want to keep an eye. You know, early signs of infection are not only at the wound site, but can also be found through vital signs. The temperature goes up, the heart rate might go up. um, So you want to keep an eye on those. Um, 
you should learn what normal ranges are for these and we do have that in uh, the section of the book so you need to know what um, common temperatures that you're looking for and those vary depending on the age of the patient also the blood pressure can vary based on the age and also heart rate so you need to learn age ranges for these so that you are appropriately assessing the patient based on their own situation so when we look at patients from a nursing standpoint it's not okay every woman at this particular age should have menstruation or every man at this particular age should have this exact thing we have to look at individuals we have to look at their culture we have to look at how they were brought up we have to look at their language um, maybe their mental capacity, depending on how old they are. If they're older, you may have to speak a little bit differently and explain things a little bit um, more clearly. So patients are individuals. And I think that's, that's really also important to know. Let's go back to vital signs. Uh, listen to the lungs, comparing one side to the other. We have a very detailed physical exam with pictures in the chapter on physical exam in the books that's very helpful to look at you can also look it up it's very simple to look on the internet and say how do i listen to lung sounds and it'll show you exactly where you're comparing one side to the other so what you want to do when you listen on the left side in one particular spot is listen to the other side in that matching area and that will give you an idea you know what you don't want to do is listen high up on the chest say in the front and then go low in the back on the other side that's not going to give you a good comparison so if they're clear you want to chart lungs clear on both sides or any specific issues that you find a pulse oximeter is helpful to check the status of the respiratory system the device uh, the device shows you how much oxygen is actually getting from the lungs into the blood and it also gives you Another vital sign, it gives you the heart rate so that you don't have to take the pulse. It has a very accurate measurement of the heart rate. Now, when you first put it on, and these are battery, I know we don't want to do batteries, but at some time, at some point, we do want to have some instruments that use batteries, and they just use two little AA batteries, so they don't use too much. So make a good supply of those. But when you first put it on, it's not accurate. So don't look at this pulse oximeter two seconds after you put it on and go, oh my gosh, the oxygen level 73 and the pulse is 30. It's not accurate. You need to give it a, at least a couple of minutes. Have the patient resting comfortably. If it's not picking up on one finger, maybe they have some arthritis or maybe they fractured that finger at some point and you know, there's kind of a bump there. You may have to go uh, to a different finger and it's okay. It doesn't matter which finger you're monitoring. Um, it just matters that you leave it on long enough to where you see there's a stable number. If something's floating from an oxygen level of 73 to 99 and then down to 62, that's not accurate. You're not getting a good measurement. It should bounce around, say, 96, 97, 96, 98, 97, 98. Then you're getting a good range. You can pick one of those to chart but make sure you chart it uh, perform capillary refills daily on both hands and feet to assure good blood flow to all the extremities you can't put the pulse oximeter on toes although i have tried <laughs> i guess one of my toes it worked on but it's not 
it doesn't typically fit on there and it's not really easy. But what you do want to do is press down on the nail bed with your two fingers, almost like you're pinching, but you're pinching with your finger pads, not the tip of your finger. Press down on the nail bed and then release. And what you're looking for is how fast the blood returns and the color before you pinched it or compressed it, how, how long it takes to get to that color. And that's how many seconds you chart your capillary refill time. Ask the patient about their pain level. Obviously, if they've had an injury, they're going to have some discomfort. Maybe it won't be too bad. But you want to give them a, a chart. And you want to say, you know, you can use smiley faces and, and unhappy faces. Or you can just do a, a, a 1 to 10 number. And you want them to tell you where on this pain scale they are. Because if they're a 7 today and they're a 5 tomorrow, then you feel there's probably some improvement. But if they've gone from a 3 today and tomorrow they're a 7, you need to take a look because there could be something not right. If it's a fracture, maybe the bones weren't lined up right. Maybe there's some kind of infection beginning. So a pain scale is very important. And note, again, uh, trends of improvement or worsening. And I do have a pain scale uh, picture that I put in the nursing book, in the nursing section. Safety and shelter is one of our topics. Provide a safe shelter with comfortable temperature. Make sure the patient's not too cold or too hot. Adequate lighting and good ventilation. If you can't control the temperature, make sure you dress them appropriately. If it's tropical, like down here in South Florida, and it's the summertime, and you're outside, obviously you're not going to pile a bunch of blankets on them. You're also not going to load them up with heavy wool socks and, you know, long pajamas. You're going to give them a light, big t-shirt. You're going to dress them very lightly. You don't have to put socks on them. Maybe you're only going to cover them with a sheet. Obviously, you want to give them some uh, privacy, and people do like to be covered. So a sheet would be fine in, in that situation. Protect the patient's confidentiality. Do not discuss any aspect of care with anyone outside of the immediate staff. And the staff is who is taking care of the patient. Not a guard by the door or somebody who brought the water in or someone who serves the food. We're talking about somebody who's actually doing the care for the patient who is assigned, quote, the nurse. Or patient-authorized patient advocates. So if they have somebody and it doesn't have to be a relative it's who they have indicated that that is the person that they're okay with they've given permission you can have it written if you want informed consent that you are allowed to discuss their situation if they have not given permission no one can ask you casually in the camp or around hey how's so and so doing you can say oh they're fine Basically, that's about the extent of what you can say. Unless they have told you, you can, they can share and you can share their personal information with others. And most people don't want that. Provide an empathetic, empathetic atmosphere with realistic goals. In other words, keep the patient up to date with the status of what's happening to them, at least daily. More frequently if needed. And allow time for questions. Don't just rush in, take care of the patient, and go. That hurried, I can't take care of you, I, you know, I'm going to do this really fast, that is not going to help the patient's emotional state, 
and you're probably going to delay their healing because they're stressed. They don't know what's going on. So make sure you talk to them. And the realistic goal part, what I'm really meaning there is that if you are in a truly outdoor, austere survival situation and there's just really no help for modern medicine to come in and rescue, there are certain things you're not going to be able to take care of. If, if things turn really sour on a patient who ends up with a blood infection, say, you need to be honest with them. Listen, you know, there's not a lot I can do. We're going to do the best we can, but you may want to start talking to your family members. So be realistic. Don't just be happy, go lucky. Oh, everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. You'll be fine. And the next day they're passed on and the family's in shock and you didn't give them a chance to deal with the end of life. And I think that's important. You need to be honest with with your patients and tell them, you know, what you think is going to happen. Assess the patient's mental status with every encounter. Does the patient know who they are, where they are, or what day it is? Monitor their moods. Listen to their speech patterns, their responses to questions or commands. Will you lift your right arm, please? as well as their posture and ability to walk should all be considered. Make note of any changes or sudden confusion. If they are awake, they know who they are, what's going on, and they're aware of everything around them. The date, the time, where they are. You can chart awake, alert, and aware once per day or record any deficits that you're finding. Keep a close, a close, close eye on anyone who's confused or disoriented. They could fall out of bed. They could try to get out of bed and hurt themselves terribly, break, break their hips, further damage a fracture they might have. You really need to keep a good eye. Please make sure somebody's at their bedside at all times. We're not locking people to their beds. We're not chaining anybody to their beds. They need to have someone sitting there. If they need help, that person is there to help them. If for some reason no one can be there, you're going to have a problem because that confused patient is probably going to try to get out of bed and hurt themselves. So you need to do your best to keep an eye on them and have someone there and tell them to let you know when they need to get up if you're not there so you can escort them. A bell, a whistle, give them some way to communicate with you. But the biggest thing is to protect these patients from falls and further injuries. Assess the patient's emotional status. Look for signs of anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Give support and listen to the patient's feelings. It's important. I was talking earlier about, you know, listening to them as a human being, who they are, where they come from, the the way they're raised, their culture, their their age, the way they look at life. Think of them as an individual. And you also need to listen. Listen to them. Tell a story. Um, talk about how they're feeling. Talk about something in the past. Let them talk. Let them verbalize as much as they want. And if you have someone in the camp or, or the survival group who is maybe a professional who's dealt with counseling or, or maybe has a degree, Try to see if you can get that person to come talk to the individual because you want to give them the best care. 
And if you don't have experience with that, you may not be giving them the best care. So see if there's another resource. It's okay to reach out and get help from others to help you with the patient. Teach patients how to use any necessary ambulation or movement equipment. Uh, Perhaps somebody happened to have a wheelchair. Um, Maybe they need crutches and some... Somebody in the group was able to make a a beautiful pair of crutches. Teach them how to use these things properly so they don't get hurt. Uh, You don't want to just throw something at them and say, okay, you know, go walk and I'll see you later. Encourage mobility as tolerated by the patient. Laying in bed all day long causes health issues. You don't want that if you can help it. It could cause blood clots, bed sores, that may never heal, and more, especially if somebody has um, uh, immunized problems, immunocompromised, if they have, say, diabetes. These people are more at a risk, and also older folks are more at a risk of having poor circulation and getting bed sores. And those, if anyone has dealt with a, a loved one that had bed sores, they are terrible and very difficult to heal. So prevention is the key here. Get them into a comfortable chair at least three to four times a day if possible. Super important. All right, now I'm going to leave this off here because you've listened to me ramble on enough about nursing care. Um, This is Amy for Joe and Amy Alton (laughs) at Doom and Bloom. Please visit us, doomandbloom.net. Our store is store.doomandbloom.net. And again, I think, Joe mentioned earlier, you can email us at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Anytime, please drop us a hint on what you'd like to listen to, a topic, anything you'd like to comment on. We are happy to listen to you and have a blessed day. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.